0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hello and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. This episode is another excerpt from the committee's annual conference, which is held in November 2017. In conjunction with our previous episodes on AI, technology, and national security, this is a section of the panel from the conference titled Artificial Intelligence, Issues of Technology, Ethics, and Law. It was moderated by Lala Kadir of Covington and Burling, who will introduce her fellow speakers. To watch a video of the entire panel discussion, please visit our website, AmericanBar.org NatSecurity, where we've posted a link to that video. Please enjoy this conversation on AI.
1: My name is Lala Kadir, and I'm thrilled to be here to welcome you to our panel on artificial intelligence and national security. Killer robots, super soldiers, Swarms of drones. These are but a few of the provocative, sensational headlines that you might find in your daily newsfeed with regards to the topic of artificial intelligence. I'm thrilled to have with us a fantastic panel of experts who will be um, walking us through and having a conversation about these key topics um, and the issues that they may present from the lens of national security. Also, uh, we took a vote and I drew the short straw, so I'm going to say a standard disclaimer on behalf of all the panelists. Yeah. Everyone here is speaking in their personal capacities, and the views expressed herein are theirs and theirs only, not of their affiliated institution, unless they say so otherwise. Um, so, with that out of the way, let's meet our panelists. You'll find full bios in your um, packet, but very briefly, the gentleman to my left, your right, is Greg Akers. He is the Senior Vice President of Advanced Security Initiatives and Chief Technology Officer at Cisco. He regularly advises on technology and security matters with a domestic and global impact. Next to him is Lieutenant Colonel Alan Schuller. Alan, sorry, um, (laughs) Michael Page. Michael Page is a policy and ethics advisor at OpenAI. At at OpenAI, he supports and um, discusses ways to keep AI safe um, and ensure that its benefits are widely distributed as possible. Then we have Lieutenant Colonel Alan Scheller, who joins us from the US Naval War College, where he recently completed a year-long research project on the interaction of international humanitarian law and autonomous weapon systems. And bringing up the rear, but certainly not least, uh, we have Professor Vladek. David teaches at Georgetown Law, where he also serves as the faculty director of Georgetown Center on Privacy and Technology. He previously served uh, as director of the Federal Trade Commission Bureau of Consumer Protection. So with those introductions done, let me set the stage for um, artificial intelligence for a little bit. Experts call AI, artificial intelligence, a term that first entered our collective lexicon back in the 1950s. It was the fourth industrial revolution wave. So you had the steam engines in the 1800s, electricity in the 1900s, and then the IT revolution in the early 2000s. Artificial intelligence, AI research, has been going on for decades. What's new, however, is, one, the pace of technological development and two, the tension being paid by state and, importantly, non-state actors. This has led to a lot of headline-grabbing newspaper articles. Uh, Earlier this year, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk got into an open debate on whether AI will bring out harm or harmony for future generations. A couple months ago, President Putin, uh, speaking at an event with students, said that the nation that leads in AI will rule the world. So before we unpack those thorny debates, let me turn to Greg, actually. And Greg, could you sort of just help us with the semantics of this topic? Um, A little bit about what artificial intelligence is, what are the key terms, robotics, autonomy. And I will say this, the goal here is really to have a conversation. This is a topic that's rife with lots of different interesting angles, I'll be ensuring that we move at a pretty fast clip through all the different topics that we have from a technical, legal, social ethics perspective. I want to make sure we've got time for questions, so we'll kind of hold 20 minutes or so at the end for questions um, before rounding out with a closing session. But with that sort of setting the stage, let me turn to Greg, and maybe he can illuminate what these terms mean for us.
2: Sure. Um, I would tell you that there, and I'm reminded by one of my law friends at William & Mary, that there is no non-expert definition that everyone agrees to about what AI is. So you could say to some degree AI is in the eyes of the beholder and I would ask you to ask a technical expert sometime what their definition is and I think a lot of them are going to get down to the point that they won't define it much better than than anybody else will but they'll say I will see I'll know it when I see it. And they'll they'll hang their hat on the fact that they they've got an idea of what it might look like. So in my view there are different levels of learning. There is something in which computers are used to do what I would call machine learning, which is the ingestion, analysis of data, and the rendering of a conclusion. And the ingestion of data can be at mass and scale unparalleled to what we've ever seen in the computational world before. The next variant of machine learning is something called, that I would call deep learning. And deep learning, to me, involves the sequencing of a set of machine learning approaches into what approximates a brain or a neural network. I would tell you that I did my first deep learning experiments in the mid-2000s on autonomous telemetry systems in racing environments. So the deep learning world has, again, been known for a while, too. And then the third, which is the level that we were going to spend most of our time talking about today, to me, is the ability for that level of learning to be applied to something to actually take action. So if at the end of the learning process there is an ultimate result that causes an action to be taken autonomically, that to me is what AI is really all about. And I should also tell you that the reason we care about this and the preponderance of engagement of the discussion has reached the level it has publicly is because of the interconnected nature of things. We are amidst what I would call yet another revolution tantamount to the industrial and technology revolutions we've already seen, and that is the revolution of the Internet of Things. And the best definition of the Internet of Things in my lexicon is provided by a vice president of my company, Machik Kranz, who says it is the connectedness of everything through something like we think of today as the Internet or an Internet-like net media of some sort. So with the interconnectedness of things and the preponderance of data that they produce we have the ability to acquire so much information and learn over it and continue to learn over it as the learning processes go on which means it's a constant learning process we can take that information learn from it and produce results that we can autonomically take action on. Now, That action could be any number of things. It could be physical it could be directed policy, it could be computationally different. It could be a number of different things, but an action would be taken, in my, in my view. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Um,
1: there'll be a quiz afterwards on what AI means, so be
3: ready for your
1: <laughs> essay answer. Um, are there other terms of art that um, anyone else would like to raise before we sort of dive into some of the topics around them?
4: I'm happy to kind of demystify a couple of the deep learning concepts in case it's useful. So, yeah, before deep learning, we had lots of different approaches to AI, like expert systems where you try to program principles that we think make us smart, Deep learning, you know, again, modeled after the brain, just a bunch of different layers of neural nets. Uh, it literally just means uh, there's an input layer, an output layer, and then there's some number of layers in between. That's what makes it deep. Uh, and the way it works is there's a couple different ways. Uh, supervised learning, generally, is when you have a data set uh, and you uh, have a reward function, or, not, or like a, something that it's trying to do. Maybe it's try, trying to identify cats in a bunch of pictures. Uh, the input layer looks at pixels. The output layer says cat, And if it's wrong, uh, it gets penalized. And then what happens is each of the uh, neural nets has some sort of uh, formula associated with them. And if it's wrong, it adjusts the formula. If it's right, it adjusts the formula in a different way. And it keeps doing that back and forth on the data set until it's really good. Um, And that's basically how supervised learning works. Uh, Another method is reinforcement learning, which is quite popular uh, on programs like Go. This is what DeepMind works on. Um, And then you do something much more complicated, like play a game. And then in the game, you get a score. Uh, so there you don't have like a simple data set like you do in supervised learning. Uh, you just get a reward, uh, either like plus, you know, plus one, plus ten, minus one at the end, and then you modify your parameters uh, based on that reward. And there are other techniques like evolutionary strategies, where you have an entire environment of agents, um, and they try and compete, and they get a reward at the end, and you take the best ones, and you do the same thing over and over and over again. And that's basically how we ended up being as smart as we are.
1: So you mentioned the game Go, Michael, and there's been a lot of press in in the last two or three years, really starting from about a decade ago, though, with computers beating human opponents first in chess, then in this game called Go, then there was an Alpha Go Zero, a more optimized level. And then most recently, um, I understand there's a game called Texas Hold'em, and uh, there is a computer that... The poker-playing computer beat all the human opponents in that game as well. Alan, one-
4: one-on-one, which is much easier than a, a 10-person Hold'em.
1: Right, exactly, because it has to account for all the uncertainties. Um, what is it about these games that really speaks to what's unusual about advancements that we're making in in computer systems and in the way computers, to use the word that Greg Greg, uh, started off with, how they think and how they're leveraging these neural networks. Alan, have have you had a chance to sort of look into that?
5: So I think it's important to kind of pause on the No Limit Texas Hold'em for a moment because it was different in kind as an accomplishment for AI than uh, previous games. Chess and Go are complicated games, uh, but the difference between poker poker, And those games is that uh, in poker, the environment is only partially observable, right? So you, in a chess game or in a go game, it may be complicated, but you can observe all of the pieces of your own and the opponents. And so you can calculate uh, earlier by brute force and later by more uh, advanced methods all of the possible outcomes of that game. And you can't do that in poker and, and, uh, in No Limit, particularly because there is no limit on the amount that you can bet. So this was a far more difficult challenge to, uh, for AI to, uh, to solve, and they've done it now. For, for me, being in the military, uh, the obvious kind of correlation is machines deciding on the battlefield, uh, you could call the fog of war a partially observable environment. So the ability of AI to make decisions uh, in this situation is, is noteworthy. Um, the, the other thing I would mention in terms of the terminology, I think it's very important just to back up just a little bit. Um, we talk about the, the word decide to me is one of the most loaded and potentially ambiguous terms in the uh, realm because to make a decision in the computer context is very different than to make a decision in the legal context. And so those terms are often uh, the same word is used to describe very different things. So it's important to understand that Uh, Machines don't decide anything in the human sense, right? Machines carry out decisions made by humans uh, using calculations. They could be very simple models, right? Old models were deterministic, more like a flowchart, so the very first computers. You knew what it was going to do. If you encounter this, then do this. If you encounter this, then do this. The new systems are not like that. They're very complicated. Uh, and we've made reference to deep learning systems. Uh, that's a great example. We don't know, even the, the scientists that create these things don't know how exactly they get to the result that they get to. But at the end of the day, you're still trying to achieve a goal that a human set out for that machine. So the machines could be unpredictable. Um, they could fail to meet standards, but that's different, very different than saying that the machine decided to do something.
1: One of the intersection points between national security and artificial intelligence is in the field of autonomous weapon systems. Could we unpack a little bit of what we really mean when we talk about an autonomous weapon system and how is that different from perhaps robotics that have been used in warfare for quite a number of years?
3: So let me talk a little about what autonomy means. Um, the first generation of fully autonomous means uh, machines, whether they're driverless cars or weapon systems, will have the capacity to act completely autonomously. They will not be tools used by humans. They will be machines deployed by humans that will act independently of direct human instruction based on information that the machine itself acquires and analyzes. And they will make, often make highly consequential decisions that are not necessarily anticipated or addressed by the machine's creators. The artificial intelligence experts call this the process of being able to sense, think, and act without human involvement and intervention. And that's why I think this is such a consequential decision.
1: So last month, Saudi Arabia became the first nation to grant citizenship to a robot. David, taking what you've raised here, should machines be given rights and held accountable? In that sense, are they analogous to a corporation that has certain personhood status? And and by way of background, when you look at common tort law or malpractice claims, product liability issues, you have um, basic premises of fault, negligence, intent. What happens when the human judgment itself is either sort of outsourced or pre-programmed to a computer system uh, and when the perpetrator is not human? Who's liable and what's the harm caused?
3: Well, so uh, Oxford professor Nick Bostrom, one of Michael's former uh, colleagues, has said that um, once machines become fully autonomous and capable of independent initiative and making of their own plans, they are perhaps more appropriately viewed as persons rather than machines.
4: That's not Sophia, for the record. Yes, it's not Sophia, (laughs) for the record.
3: Um, But, uh, you know, there's a real question. So, for example, if we have, you know, level five truly autonomous vehicles, one proposal is that they simply become corporations, that they... In, you know, you incorporate them, you buy insurance for them, and they have some elements of personhood. I think we're a long way from that. I would not necessarily give Sophia uh, the rights of a, of a person, but I think that once we reach that stage, and I, you know, the other panelists may have a better sense of how far off that is. Those are issues that we're going to have to, that we're to, have to confront. But uh, there are already discussions about basically incorporating autonomous vehicles as a way of establishing liability regimes and uh, sort of figuring out who ultimately is responsible if there is some accident that is not traceable back to the hands of man.
1: So turning to a slightly different topic, a few years ago a movement came together to ban fully autonomous weapons, colloquially known as killer robots, through the, convention of conventional, through, the, through the Convention of Conventional Weapons. In fact, the first meeting of this sort of state's party to this group is happening this week. It took place on Monday, November 13th. Um, a key premise in this effort is that AWS, Autonomous Weapons Systems, cannot comply with the International Humanitarian Legal Principles, IHL, particularly those principles of necessity, distinction, proportionality, non-discrimination, and humane treatment. Alan, you recently spent a year or so with a team of military and civilian professors studying this very interaction of how AI can comply with IHL. Advocates of this ban pretty much argue that allowing a life-or-death decision on the battlefield cannot be made by machine. It's a threshold of a moral threshold that should not be crossed, whereas advocates of, of sort of autonomous weapon systems argue that it's actually going to be a much better system because it can be more effective, more efficient. In your opinion, do you believe that autonomous weapon systems can comply with IHL principles?
5: Yeah, so again, we're going back to the, the word decision, uh, that decision shouldn't be delegated to machines. And, and again, machines don't make decisions, machines carry out decisions made by humans. And the way they do that and whether or not they're predictable and they can satisfy IHL standards is a very different question. So, um, really, the answer to your question depends on the assumptions you make because most people agree uh, that fully autonomous weapon systems don't exist yet. And so, uh, depending on your view of how you think the technology will evolve, uh, the answer to that is either sure, they can, absolutely, they can comply with it, or they could never comply with it. Um, to take a little bit less radical view, uh, it really depends on, when we're developing these systems, what kind of fragments of the OODA loops, right? The observe, orient, aside, act, the Boyd cycle that we frequently talk about in the military as a decision-making model. Uh, what portions of that loop do we grant to, to machines? Which ones do we delegate? Notice I didn't say how much of that loop um, or which ones. I said what combinations, which, which, uh, which portions do we combine together to give to those machines? Because depending on the portions we grant them, uh, they could be very problematic or they could be not problematic. So since they don't exist, we, we kind of have to take a more general approach and, and discuss this in terms of principles. So as autonomy increases in, in weapon systems, because we're not going to turn around tomorrow and say, there it is, there, there is AWS. It's probably just not going to happen because autonomy has existed for a long time. It will continue to increase in weapon systems. So we need a broader kind of approach. The first... Kind of principle that I could uh, tell you, at least from my perspective, with respect to the the, the development of these systems, is that you can't delegate the decision to kill, right? And so under IHL, the the decision to use lethal force against either a target or, remember, a class of targets, right? We've been in a counterinsurgency uh, for over a decade now. Um, We have to remember how to fight a near-peer competitor right? And during an international armed conflict, you have status-based targeting. So the decision to attack a type of target or a class of targets, that decision can't be functionally delegated to a machine. A machine may carry out a decision. It may carry out in a very complicated way uh, that we can't necessarily predict exactly what it's going to do, but that responsibility lies with humans. It cannot be delegated. So if if sufficient portions of this decision-making process are delegated to machines such that we're no longer able to say this thing will reasonably comply with IHL, uh, then we've abrogated our legal responsibilities and that that would be a violation of, of, uh, of the law of war. That's not to say, however, that humans need to be on the loop, in the loop, whatever you want to use, which term you want to use, or that there has to be human involvement that's temporally proximate to a kill. Okay, so that's absolutely not what I'm saying. It's important to, uh, to, to kind of distinguish the two because, again, these systems may be called on to make, to take actions, to take lethal action that is uh, in time and space uh, very separate from human interaction. And those systems may be perfectly lawful or not, depending on, on uh, what we can predict they'll do in terms of IHL compliance.
1: Do others have a view on the issues raised by Alan in terms of? human decisions in the control systems and the spectrum of decision-making?
2: I have a view on something I think we need to think about in that context. The preponderance of decision support systems that we use in many different places, on the battlefield, in business, along many different decision-making lines, are becoming increasingly complicated and increasingly relied upon. And I was discussing the preparation for this panel with one of my members of RGC at Cisco and he said, you know, one of the things we have to come to grips with is that even if we don't rely on final action being taken by the autonomous system or the AI system, the decision support system, the technology that's there to do it, will be used by the humans and create biases of the humans in ways that we have to understand where someone will look at a decision-making process and say, well, the machine told me it was the right thing to do, so I therefore I did it. We have to come to grips with dealing with that bias creation and how we're going to interpret that. Uh, the other thing I was sitting up here laughing at, and I, I just have to share a little tech joke with you guys, it just struck me that AWS, Autonomous Weapon Systems, is the same acronym we use to describe the Amazon web services that we all consume computational resources on. <laughs> I don't know if that was an act- accident or not, but I find that re- remarkably funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was a story earlier this summer um, that, you, that you guys may be familiar with. Um, involving Facebook, Um, so Facebook built two sort of like chatterbots, and and they were communicating with one another, and there was a game of bartering, so for one of X, they would give two of Y, or something to that effect. The the key takeaway, though, is that um, even though it was a system designed by humans, monitored by humans, at at one point, and it only, you know, maybe a couple or so hours into it, Um, the robot, the chatterbots, began communicating with each other using shorthand. And it was a shorthand that the human operators had no knowledge of. And so concerned were the Facebook uh, designers and programmers that they shut the bots down. Because they didn't know what was going on, but it had reached a level of optimization that sort of superseded human capabilities. Um, So... Can, can we talk a little bit about the risks associated with the deep machine learning that leverages neural networks so it's not so much a straight input output framework we're teaching machines how to think better and given the computational force of a machine that is far far exceeds human capabilities because there's no restriction on needing to sleep or or drinking coffee, any of those things. You really have an extraordinary computational power. And the fact that it happens so early on, um, I think, fuels some of the uh, speculation and some of the risks about that. So um, I'm going to throw it out there. Please jump in and sort of react to what I've said and tell me kind of where, where the touch points are.
4: I have a bunch of thoughts on this, but I can and I'll start.
3: Well, let me kick this off. I mean, I think one of the challenges of AI is making sure that whatever the machine does aligns with sort of the preferences and views of human beings. And you know, Michael's point about using sort of human feedback as part of the training is an important part. But that is one of the one of the reasons why people are still skeptical about autonomous weapon systems that have sort of basically a mission of killing people, because the question really is, how do you engineer in sufficient safeguards to make sure that all of the subtleties that go into human thinking are represented in whatever algorithms or whatever other processes are driving the machine? And so I think it's a fair question, basically, to ask, how do you sort of is, is human sort of feedback enough to really guarantee that the interests are ultimately going to align?
5: So real, real briefly, um, I think it's important to, uh, to not expect too much of AI. So because it is so incredibly unpredictable, there are ways we can ensure that it could comply with IHL or whatever rules we're talking about, simply by knowing what it's not going to do or by bounding it in some way or giving it uh, less capabilities Know, not giving it a weapon, that type of thing. Uh, there could be huge advantages to having a system that's highly unpredictable uh, as long as we know that it's not going to do something that is not what we want, right? It's not going to um, take an action that is against what we're trying to accomplish strategically. It's not going to kill the wrong people. It's not going to slaughter civilians, that type of thing. But there could be huge uh, military advantage to having a system that's unpredictable much in the same way as the, as the poker-playing robot was unpredictable, All of those human factors that went into a normal poker game, right? Where you you read the other person. They're wearing sunglasses, so you can't see their eyes. They got their hat pulled down, and they don't. They're very good at their tells. They don't have any tells. Like if I was playing poker against a great poker player, I'd lose in a minute because I'm projecting all sorts of different uh, tells as to my hand. The advantage of having AI on the other side of the table is it's a black box. You have no idea what it's going to do, and it's probably not going to do what you think it would do or what a human would do, and so from a strategic per- perspective, if you're fighting the World War II Pacific battle, right, you're trying to outmaneuver the enemy and, and, uh, and win a decisive battle against their forces, it could be hugely advantageous. It could also be very problematic.
4: Um, yeah, so safety is really important. Uh, the Facebook story is, is not a good example of safety concerns. To borrow a trendy phrase, that is definitely fake news, and people should try harder to report more <laughs> accurately on, on AI. Um, None of that happened in the way it was described in the media. Uh, It's not dangerous. Uh, If you see people anthropomorphizing AI systems to explain safety risks, just stop reading. The main safety risks with these systems uh, are some of what was already described. You know, we don't really know how they work. Uh, That's the nature of of deep nets. Uh, We're never going to know exactly how they come up with the solutions they come up with. Um, it's really hard to specify the things we want systems to do. We don't have a a, a formalization, a formula for things that we want in the world. And there are lots of subtle things that we don't want systems to do on their way to accomplishing a goal, even if we could specify that goal. All of this is extremely subtle. We know it and we see it. But if we want systems to do this for us, we need to figure out how to imbue them with our subtle intuitions, values about, like, what's okay and what's not, what we actually want. It's extremely hard. And that's where safety risks come up. And the more capable, the more general, and the more autonomous the system, uh, the bigger these problems are. Uh, but it's not, it's not like a robot uprising.
2: So I have to comment technologically. I believe that the things that were wished for in these last two points of discussion are plausible. I have to point out to you guys that I, I hold hope that technology will yield the kinds of computational capability that would give us that representation of the human in the process. And I'll point at a technology that everyone is probably familiar with in the national security realm because we've talked about it a lot, and actually Michael and I were chatting about it as we were sitting down. The world of quantum computing in the national security area is worried about and fraught about because of the implications to cryptography in the world as we know it today. There have been since the late 90s algorithms that have proven that in the face of quantum co- calculations, Classic cryptography, as we know it today, is typically rendered useless. It does not protect data as we had hoped that it would.
4: Greg, please
2: explain quantum computing. Okay, sure. So in a very simple state, a computer understands a binary state, either on or off, and it aggregates those binary states to decide the answer to a a question or a problem. In a quantum environment, The nature of particle positioning within the confines of an atom, for example, is used to represent state, which means there are basically infinite numbers of state that could exist in a system where you could then compute over it in a way that you can mass mathematically different perspectives in a way that we've never been able to before, which basically is the reason that we can factor the cryptography that we know today into a state that we can actually break the ciphers. So the point is that quantum computing is a difficult problem from a national security standpoint as it relates to our cryptography we use today. However, I've said for a number of years now that we should be thinking about the things that quantum state could provide us in computation in other ways, and I believe this is a place where we might actually be able to use that technology benefit, that technology advance in a way to help us in this sentience that we're searching for in the human environment. Now, Michael's question to me when we sat down was, how soon do we think there will be a quantum computer? I would tell you the same thing I told him as we were sitting down. I see people the world over working on developing quantum technology to develop a quantum computer. There's a company in Canada that says they have a quantum computer. It is a quantum effect computer, but they're working on it. It actually does not have the ability to run the algorithms that are available to us today to crack cryptography. So that problem is not inherently concerning to us with that particular approach. But there are computer scientists the world over, I talk to them in Asia, I talk to them in India, I talk to them in Europe, that are studying this problem and thinking about it. And in my view, the advances towards quantum technology will bring us a number of other advances, not just the quantum computer itself. There will be material science that will come as a result of it. There will be engineering. There will be other computational gains. For example, many of you probably know something that we've relied on in the computational world called Moore's Law, Moore's law is the inherent ability to compute more with smaller transistor sizes in in wafers in silicon that we can deal with today. I've learned of recent activities in some of the silicon manufacturers that are actually beginning to take silicon advances and learning to represent quantum state in those silicon environments in ways that we've never thought about before. Those kind of advances are gonna bring us capabilities in places in AI that we haven't even thought about, and I think that's one of the things, technologically, we need to start paying some attention to is that as we go down this path, There are gonna be advances in technology that are gonna bring us sentience in systems like we've been discussing here today because that computational capability that'll be sooner rather than later. So to answer the question that Michael asked, when will we have a quantum computer? I'm 58 years old. I think it'll be in my lifetime. I don't think I'm gonna die in the next five years, for example, but maybe in the next 10 years, I think we'll have it.
1: (laughs) And you thought today was only gonna be on national security and artificial intelligence. We're also getting a computer degree. We are going to
0: end the panel here for the podcast, but if you'd like to hear the rest, visit our website, americanbar.org slash natsecurity, for a full video of the AI panel from the 27th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference. Please join us next week for a new episode, and the Standing Committee on Law and National Security has an event coming up in Washington, D.C. this month. On April 24th, we will host a luncheon on use of force in North Korea and the legal process. Podcasts are fantastic, but social networking isn't really networking, so please join us in person. From all of us here, thank you for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at
1: ABA Matt Sack.